So for our session on um, medicine and love, um, it's a great um, honour to invite two giants, really, for me anyway, uh, of medicine um, and supporters of this project pretty much since its inception. Iona Heath is a doctor and a writer. She's president of the Royal College of General Practitioners from 2009 to uh, 2012. Raymond Tallis is a philosopher, poet, novelist, and was, until recently, a uh, physician listed as one of the top living polymaths in the world by Economist Intelligent Life magazine. Ray and Iona. I just wonder if we might start by thinking about, um, briefly, what, if we accept that the, one of the purposes of medicine is to do good to others, yeah? That's a reasonably uncontestable claim. Yeah, I like that. What's the, what is the shape and content of that good? What's the, what, what, is, what do we mean oh, yeah. by Sim- it? Simple starter for five. That yes, one. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Can I take legal advice on that? <laughs> After you. <laughs> what is the shape and content? I, I, I think the fundamental moral focus is suffering, however you define that. It isn't, it isn't as popularly conceived, disease. Um, uh, I think it's it, it, it's addressing some, it's providing some respite for someone in distress, and that can involve um, a diagnosis of disease. But it doesn't necessarily, and sometimes the diagnosis just perpetuates the suffering and the distress rather than relieve it. So I think we have to. The suffering is the fundamental moral determinant, I would say. So the alleviation of suffering. Mm. Mm. And if we, if we run with that, which I would completely subscribe to, then there are certain other moral obligations that follow. And interesting, the most important one is probably competence. And we're going to talk about love in due course, and we'll be talking about love in the rather cold climate of contemporary medicine. But it seems to me competence, the ability to listen, accountability, kindness, all of those things that enable a really successful uh, meeting with the, with the patient to make sure that you do tune in to what their suffering is and you get the diagnosis right at every level, whether it's pathology or indeed psychology or the social setting or whatever. I mean, you've, both, you've both arrived early at the idea of a... Um, <clears throat> so we're trying to work out what the shape of that good is. And you've both arrived early at that shape being informed by moral moral yeah. quantifiers is it not enough then if for me to let's say I'm in t- accept the moral drive to do good can that not just be populated by purely technical skills yes and we were talking to Roger this morning the, at lunchtime about how um, you know orthopaedic surgeons are so important when you really need them and they certainly do good um, but, but that, I think, is an example. You don't need to talk to them. You don't even need to relate to them. You just want them to do a good job. But, 
But that's where it Have comes back. Have we got any orthopaedic surgeons in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> but that's where Again. it comes back to what Ray's saying about uh, uh, the competence being a, a component of the, that morality. So but it's because it's the, the technical competence that is overwhelmingly important. Whereas in my field, general practice, if you're only technically competent, you're completely useless, I think. So you're saying it's really important, both of you, but insufficient, not enough? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems to be medicine isn't homogeneous. Neither what you're offering nor the situation the patient is trying to hope come to you for alleviation, homogeneous. So there is a difference from the situation of somebody repairing your broken, fractured neck of femur or whatever, and somebody seeing you through a serious condition like cancer or help supporting you through chronic disease or whatever. That's a different kind of situation. So there isn't a single answer. It seems to me competence is important at every level, whatever um, condition the patient has. But purely, pure technical competence is appropriate in only a very few situations, such as broken leg or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> a great um, <coughs> excuse me, hero of yours, John Berger, mm. in um, A Fortunate Man in 1970, wrote that Sassel was not acknowledged as a good doctor because of his cures, that you've got to be a strikingly bad doctor mm. to be kind of noticed for that, for that to reach the radar, but because he meets the deep, unformulated expectations of the sick for a sense of fraternity, and he recognises them. Now, what I, w- I mean, I've always loved that quote, but I was struck by your essay, Iona, a few years ago, that actually 25 years later to that um, quote from an astonishing book, in fact, he'd come to distrust doctors because they no, re- no longer really love people. Mm. Yeah, it's a really... It's such... It was such an indictment. I mean, moving from writing A Fortunate Man to writing that sentence... It was it was really, I, th- I think reading that sounds one of the most saddest moments of my career. Really, reading that and and trying to understand it and trying to um, explore it. Um, and it's that it's in response to that that actually I I got to know John and and th- and then of course that became one of the great joys of my life. So you know you never know where you're going. <laughs> um, and 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 I hope I managed to reel it back a little bit. It's interesting, though, that 25 years that bridges those two quotes probably isn't far off the period of time that separates some halcyon notion of medicine to the contemporary ills that we so often lament or are charged with lamenting. So something's changed. And and that's the political framework, but actually, one thing I mustn't forget to mention is I think it's really very well worthwhile uh, reading Iona's fantastic uh, lecture, the Michael O'Shea lecture, which actually is called Love's Labour's Loss, which actually is the loss of love in a sense. There's a pun in it as well. But the second thing is the political framework. By the time 1995 had come, we'd had a total change of the political framework. Politicians had essentially said doctors are untrustworthy. If they are not made to compete with each other in some kind of market, the internal market, if they're not being uh, measured by targets, basically their intrinsic wickedness will actually uh, (coughs) express itself. So there was definitely an atmosphere of distrust uh, towards doctors creating the political framework, which was then increased uh, during the Blair years. 
and of course, we know what's happened since 2010, unmitigated catastrophe. So I think what John Berger was picking up was that sense of distrust which had been fermented towards the medical profession. And combined with um, the rise of this conviction that we can treat uh, the existential, the fundamental existential problems of life with technical solutions. We've kind of displaced that. We, we Courage, endurance, stoicism, all those sort of virtues that got humanity through ha have been completely displaced by the idea that there's a, there can be a technological solution. So you're both pointing there. So we're trying to identify what's changed mm. in our in, in, in love, in you know mm. the whole orientation of medicine to duty and love. And you've both pointed to two things. One, a shift in the political framework, expectations, demands, but also this notion that there's an expectation, a wide expectation for technical fixes to existential problems. And presumably, we can't lay that phenomenon entirely at the hands of the political oh. establishment. So yes. You think we can, right? But, no, but they've just colluded with perhaps <coughs> something that's changing okay. largely in society. But love hath no targets. Uh, love hath no CQCs, as it were, holding it to account. It seems to me that the very climate <coughs> in which kindness and empathy are very, very important, that climate is actually past to some extent because people are punitively measured by certain outcomes that have nothing to do with love, kindness, etc. They're inevitably going to focus on those outcomes. Um, just to give you one example, I heard, and this may be untrue, I know, there, was a, there was a general practice that was rated as inadequate because its curtain washing cycle did not meet the criteria. And that's the kind of measurement that the medical profession is subordinated to now. And I guess you could probably go on at length I about what general practice has happened. I could go on at yeah. enormous length about yeah. CQC inspections, but I will restrain myself for, yeah. for the non-GPs in the audience yeah. who would merely be... You've made that, Ray, you made the comment to me um, a couple of weeks ago around the notion of medicine as a calling rather than yeah. a business, a covenant, not a yeah. narrowly defined contract. Yeah. Why? Why should that be the case? I think it's, again, larger trends in society. No, no, why, should, why should we aim for the calling and the covenant rather than the contract? What's wrong with the contract? I think the contract is too narrow and that basically you can deliver on what the contract uh, requires of you without necessarily delivering for what the patient wants right. of you. Um, and, of course, in, in, in a private set, privatised setting, and I hope we talk about the potential yeah. malignant effect of yeah. privatisation, then you can, the more contracts you deliver on, uh, the better. And it need to have no relationship to the needs of the client. So the contract commerce. doesn't... The contract may um, achieve, you know, said goals or whatever, measurables, but it doesn't achieve medical care. It may... Uh, and, okay. uh, but it, it, it may not. I mean, for example, it's difficult to build into a contract empathy, concern, mm. kindness. Kindness, for example, is incredibly time-consuming, and it doesn't appear <coughs> as, as an output. I know. Well, thank God, you know. Uh, let's not go for evidence-based love. That would be... It's quite <laughs> that would be... outcome-based love. That would be yeah, the, yeah. the very yeah. end. Yeah. I think the problem... Two problems with the contract model. Mm. One is... Um, that it's predicated on certainty. Mm. Okay. One input, one output. Yep. That there's a simple, straightforward solution to every problem. 
which is something a conviction of uh, politicians and many policymakers. And of course, we all know that that's not true. Contracts can't accommodate uncertainty at the level of which it operates within medicine. And the other thing is, I don't think contracts are able to uh, correlate service to an assessment of need. And, and as contracts and as um, the market has risen, um, we have delivered more and more services for the well, and we have neglected or frag totally fragmented the care for the people with multiple illnesses and multiple needs. And every initiative, um, new initiative, seems to take more resources away from those in most need. But the, the idea, <clears throat> you would both accept that, so we can have well-intentioned doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, who want to um, deliver good care. Now, does that then mean there are no grounds for holding us accountable? It depends whether you mean accountable or accountable. Being accountable is quite different from being generally accountable. And because there are obvious ways in which you can monitor people's performance. Uh, and I think it's very important because you might have well-intentioned doctors, you might have idle sods. You know, people or who, incompetent ones. Or incompetent. Yeah. All of yeah. that is, yeah. is absolutely needs to be somehow checked. But there comes a point when you move from accountability to accountability when actually you can be less effective and generally look better. But, just, but you would both accept the need for some form of accountability, oh, yeah. or would you? Yes, I would, but I think that so much harm has been done in its name that we need to be very, very careful with it. And, and, and in this fabulous essay I wrote, apparently. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <coughs> I did talk about the, the experience in my career of, of going into public service in the mid-1970s, when going into public service was viewed as a, a good. Mm. And by the time we got through to the end of my career, being in public service is somehow despicable, and you're acting in self-interest, and, you and you're incompetent and idle unless proved otherwise. And so the, the, the accountability needs to be along the lines of that you are innocent until proved guilty. And I think it's a terrific burden for young people going into medicine, this assumption that, that they're going to be completely useless unless there's someone standing on their shoulder. And there's something about being expected to treat other people with compassion and empathy when you are receiving none at all from the system. And it's also, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, the notion of a professional is that you exercise your judgment and you have some independent agency. When you become merely a machine that reacts to what is obliged, required of you, then you lose some of your professionalism. And one of the things that was in um, uh, Iona's essay, uh, she quotes Julian Legrand, who wrote a very influential book at the beginning of about 2000, roughly, ish, and he was an advisor. Uh, an economist who was an advisor to uh, Tony Blair. And he looked at people in public service. And he says they always present themselves as knights, knights in shining armour. But actually, they could be self-interested knaves. And perhaps they ought to set default to assume that they're self-interested. And that default assumption, I think, is intrinsically damaging to the profession. 
Well, ours is not the only profession. I mean, the teaching profession has had it just as badly. And it is part of a uh, general trend within society of moving from a covenantal society uh, where the professionals had a calling and exercised their judgment to a narrowly contractual society where they had to be held narrowly to account to produce certain outputs and so on and so forth. And this is damaging to the profession. I have to say... Luckily, that damages yes. Damaging also to society. Damage absolutely (coughs) to both sides of the relationship between pupil and teacher or patient and doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Would you both just wonder a bit then about what it is? So, if we if we're finding ourselves in a world that asks for technical fixes to problems of human existence consistently, um, and we're struggling to articulate then what we do about accountability premised on certainty over slightly more nuanced terrain that we know human life um, thrives with. And what's changed there to get to a point where we're now expecting, all right, the politicians may have colluded in it, and I might come back to this because I don't think we can comfortably say the politicians because they will be a variegated bunch of human beings. (laughs) Well, I would counter it because I think actually they are variegated and there are some good politicians out there. any part of society is an independent initiator of what's happening in society. So what's changed, though, to get us as a society, if we can think about this, if we can think about... I don't think it just applies to the Western world, but let's think about what the Western world typifies where we're expecting um, technical fixes and certainty all the time. What's prompted that? Well, partly it's doctors. I mean, uh, to a very large extent, it's doctors. It's also people who are making vast sums of money out of the technical fixes. So the pharmaceutical industry and the people who... and the medical technology industries are are, are generating enormous profits by selling dubious remedies um, for, for, for people's conditions. I mean, just just take a consultation where... A woman comes in distressed. Now, pre, in the in the halcyon days, you might have listened to the story before you got involved. But now, the computer flashes up that this person is overdue for their blood pressure check. Mm. So you're already at the end, back of your mind, thinking, God, I must somehow work in to take this patient's blood pressure before... So you're already you're distracted. And then... Then, you know, you learn this story, say, that um, the woman is distressed because her son was arrested by the police last night or something even worse. Under no circumstances should you measure this patient's blood pressure on this day. (coughs) It would be completely crazy. Um, But that's not acknowledged in the audits and the checks and the quality, quality indicators. And I'm terribly divided on this because all because it's the classic, you know, measuring the things of no value and failing to value the things that you can't measure. Somebody said that rather more elegantly than me. Um, but but the more I talk about the more it, the things I think are more important, then I have this horrible fear that someone's going to try and measure them, and therefore murder to dissect. You know, this. The difficulty is though over that period that John Berger alludes to, there have been profound advances in medical science and clinical technology. And in terms of outcomes, if you look at what's happened to cardiovascular mortality in the 90s, for example, it dropped tremendously because of um, statins and so on and so forth. 
but I, I share. Debate. Hang on a second. Debate. And I, I said, and, 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 and so forth. Well, not even the first one. No, no, no. no I, well, exactly. I think there's some evidence on statins for S trial as well, but. Oh, good. We found a point of disagreement. We're talking about progress. But it's interesting. I mean, I share Iona's exasperation about, say, screening. There's a lot of money in screening, and actually, screening may actually just create more worried well and so on. But there's. There's a Janus bit to this, but let's just. It's incontestable that there has been progress, technical progress. We can wonder about the quality of it, the depth of it. We can worry about the benefits and the ethics of it, but there has been scientific progress. Now, that things that were unthinkable 20 years ago are not only now um, practicable, but they're expected. Like? Well, I, as starting out as a junior doctor in oncology at the RUH, wouldn't have even conceived of the possibility that someone with an advanced non-small cell lung cancer would be treated with immune modulatory therapy that would give them a survival of a year, which would have been... Now, we can worry about the amounts here and we can question the ethics of it, something that would have had a median survival of a few months. So, So there has been a technical change which is now readily available, paid for within the NHS, and undoubtedly expected. And oncology is a spectacular example of progressive incremental improvement as a result of research at every level, from the basic science through the pathology to the way of delivering care and so on and so forth. And and I would agree with you, we mustn't forget about that. But taking the the bigger question behind it is why uh, are we in the kind of mess in relation to some things that we are? And there's a beautiful quote from Theodore Dalrymple, and it's it's a parody of the opening line of Rousseau's... um, one of Rousseau's books, but essentially he says, man is born everywhere immortal, yet he dies. Somebody must be at fault. And there's this sense that basically that the natural condition of humanity is to live forever, and that at any stage, either stopping treatment or whatever, must, must be the fault, must be a, an unacceptable decision. And I think that is a problem. And the notion of screening everybody for everything, which creates great, great burdens on general practice and so on, I think is part of that misunderstanding of the nature of human life. And, and, I I have, and, 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 and I think there has definitely been progress, but all progress comes at a cost. Not just, it clearly comes at a, a huge financial cost to all of us, but I think it also comes at an emotional and existential cost. It doesn't mean you shouldn't make the progress. But the danger is that you're so much concentrating, I'm sure you aren't, but one might be so much concentrating on keeping this patient alive for a year that you forget to to concentrate on that existential journey that is only going one way and that we... And it's, it's probably not appropriate with a relatively young person with a, with a small cell, good ladder, non-small cell. Um, but we are torturing the elderly. Well, it's, it's when you say probably not appropriate, this is the difficulty, isn't it? So there's a, Richard Holloway, who's going to be um, speaking to us tomorrow, has got this great quote that good people can disagree about the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And already within probably not appropriate, there's that diff- terrible mm-hmm. subjectivity. And you've both, as philosopher, ethicist, recognised that we can rationally arrive at a set of um, decisions about what the the good or the right thing to do might be, yeah? 
where the tipping point is between love understood as ever more treatment in the hope of achieving remissions and prolonging life and what you and I sitting here might say was clearly folly is really hard to legislate for. It's because it comes down, it's to impossible legis to legislate for, and it falls down to organisations and individuals to reach those judgments within the terrain of something that's trustworthy. But this is where really love comes in. Mm. This is where love comes in because mm. this is where the quality of the decision yes. is going to be dependent on the quality of the relationship between okay, the patient so and the doctor. Tell me a bit more about what you mean by that and trust as opposed to contractual accountability. Mm. It's because we are well beyond, and this is where we really have made progress, I think we are well beyond the stage where you see a patient, you decide this treatment's appropriate, and you prescribe this treatment, and the patient says, yes, doctor, thank you very much, doctor, you're a wonderful doctor. Um, and we are, we are sharing decisions, or we are attempting to share decisions, and we are sharing decisions to the extent that a patient wishes to share them. But we're also aware that you mustn't abandon patients to a, 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 a decision that could have serious consequences. So asking parents to take the decision about what treatment a, a very sick child has had should take, that should never be delegated completely to the parents because then if it goes wrong, they have to carry that guilt for the rest of their life. You uh, obligingly will offer them the doctor as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a carrier of part of that guilt. I want to separate the ought from the is, though, because you and I know that patient A, faced with doctors 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5, will have that decision, even if it's a shared decision, mm. <clears throat> articulated very differently. Yes. Both in terms of the nuance of the language, but what the recommendation will be, the force with which that recommendation will be... Um, recommended is very different and it's really disorientating um, for patients and even in a world of shared decision making and autonomy finally what we're recommending and the spin we're putting on it has real force I think that's true and, and I mean pursuing long odds to grim ends is something that happens so often say five percent ten percent what does that mean when you're dealing with something absolutely existential and, and, and the, the example that I only was referring to, we're thinking about some very high-profile neonatal or paediatric cases. Where is the pressure to, uh, as you were, where is the decision being made? I mean, in the case of a child, clearly the parents are... Um, have to be central decision-making, but I so totally share with Iona that they shouldn't have to carry the burden decision-making. But behind those parents, there is a huge social pressures. This comes through very clearly in Atul Gawande's mortality, where, as it were, even if the patient was going to make what you felt was the right decision, and in kindness and so on, you were going to recommend it to them, there's relatives behind. And then, actually, what's missing in Atul Gawande's um, book is the elephant dropping in the room, which is namely the pressure to sell the product. So, uh, in the States, doctors will recommend all sorts of courses of action whose only benefit is to increase uh, the profit to the provider. So, th there's lots of pressure. So, even if one had a really trusting relationship with a patient, one often hear, I heard relatives saying, I want you to do everything for him, doctor. Uh, implying things that go way beyond what you thought was kind and appropriate. 
Uh, and then behind them, in turn, would be pressure from now mediated through the social media to say, well, this is what should be done. Yeah. Love. Uh, I mean, th th that should never be not challenged. What? I want you to do everything for him, Doctor. Oh, of course, of course. What exactly does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean poisoning him till his last day? Well, we should be careful with words like poison because all drugs <laughs> have are beneficial. And the reason I say that is because we are trying to make a case for being rational against political spin. So let's be careful. So you mean let's not medicate someone with potentially harmful effects as well as potentially beneficial effects at all costs? Exactly. Yeah, yeah but you want to understand. You want to understand what that patient is really what that relative is really saying and why they're saying it which is why continuity of care is so fundamentally important you cannot develop a, a, a relationship of love and trust between two human individuals in any setting where you only see them once and never again see the effect of discontinuity of care when a patient who clearly has a mortal illness and comes in with an acute emergency and the decision will always be to resuscitate or whatever because we don't know enough about what he or she wants. But I agree with you, one shouldn't, um, as it were, wilt before inappropriate pressure. But it's just become, or has become, more difficult in the context Why of the patient. More difficult? Well, perhaps the patient, context of the patient's client, the notion that the, excuse me, that the, as it were, the doctor is the servant of the state in some sense, um, or that is there to provide a service. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Courtesy. Thank you. Um, I think that is the environment. I mean, the office environment was where doctor knew best and would make all the decisions, often the wrong ones, and where they wouldn't be challenged. In other words, we had a corrective to that, and now perhaps we need a corrective to the corrective. So the determinants yeah. of trust, continuity, yeah? Yes. Or if not determinants, the facilitators of trust. Continuity, what else? No, uh, listening. So listening, some kind of meaningful attention, engagement. Yeah. focus... Really, because there's a wonderful study from uh, from somebody I think in Denmark who shows that um, continue only only has any value if the person feels recognised in the first encounter, which brings you back to John Berger. If they if they don't feel seen or heard in the first encounter, no amount of uh, uh, continuity is going to. Well, it'll take a long time for continuity to repair it. What about the the lady that we're describing with this non notional individual we're describing is saying continue at all costs, Doctor. Mm. Yeah? Now, it sounds like we're both, we're all saying we oughtn't to, yeah? So we're challenging perhaps an individual's positive um, right towards insisting on something that we mightn't think is in their best interest. But doing that does require something not wildly off bravery in, yeah. and clinical ownership as well as knowing the ethics and law and all the rest of it, and be able to communicate that in a way that is clear. Thoughtful and kind, sure, but clear. But further to that, there is a very real, often unspoken fear, although Henry Marsh wrote about it um, very well, I think, around seeming nihilistic. Mm. That if I don't do this, I'm just not going to be macho enough against my colleagues who would quite readily deliver untold further therapies. Do you think that's a real entity? I think it's true. It comes through very clearly in, in Henry's book, and he speaks incredibly honestly about so many things that very few people have been honest about. There is this feeling that another doctor would have tried harder. 
uh, even irrespective of whether it was the right thing to and do. And be perceived as a better doctor. And as a result, perceived as a better doctor, yeah. You know, he, he didn't give up on me or she didn't give up on me. You don't think that's true? Or do you think that's sometimes true? I think that's sometimes true. Yeah. I don't think it's always true. No, no, no I agree. Uh, that's uh, just, yeah, sure. Uh, but it's possible. Know, it holds... David Reef about Susan Sontag. Yeah. I mean, you know, that is a... That is a that is a diatribe against the, the ridiculous ambition of both doctors and patients. But indeed, Sontag, for all of her writing about and all of her reasoned thinking around many of these things, did pursue. Absolutely. And, uh, and then, then he, and, and he, and he felt a, a doctor should, the son felt that a, at least one of her doctors should have had sufficient courage to stand up to her fear. Mm. I just wonder if we might then think about because so we've we've comfortably villainised bureaucrats and everybody. politicians, yeah. <laughs> every, every, everybody except ourselves. Everybody except yeah. ourselves. Yeah. We yeah. are yeah. lovely people. Absolutely, and, and we, I, I love chose. and yeah. we care. Yeah. But actually, might it be reasonable to begin to turn, you know, the mirror on ourselves a bit and think if, in fact, so I was struck. I mean, if I was going to say, if in fact, politicians and bureaucrats are measuring, attaching um, um, resource into ever more intervention at the behest you know, of the consumer, what are we doing to collude in exactly that um, state of events? There was this great... Hisham Matar, the writer, when he went past Grenfell Tower, wrote this brilliant piece in The Guardian where he talked about the feeling of culpability that actually... Grenfell stood for the way in which we'd organised ourselves. Mm. Absolutely. And I just wonder whether medicine, epitomised in doctors perhaps, you know, I'm not going to speak for the rest of um, healthcare professionals, contribute towards this world um, order. I'm sure that's true. And I, I can plead guilty or an innocent as charged because as a geriatrician, a lot of my time was spent advocating for older people who were seen not to be worthy. Of when I started in geriatrics in 1980, older people who were not seen worthy of invasive treatment and so on and so forth. And in many cases, it was not appropriate. They, there was potentially huge gains. So I've certainly contributed an awful lot in my own way to uh, increasing the availability of advanced technical medicine to a group of people who hitherto may have missed out and been rationed against. So, but I think there's a balance, isn't there? Part of the difficulty of our conversation is we are homogenizing what is actually quite a complicated... Well, not deliberately homogenising, but what is a complicated situation? And in some situations, as we began, it's appropriate to be a technician. In other situations, much more of ourselves has to be deployed if we're going to do the right thing by the patient. Of course. You're saying two things. You're saying we collude, which we do collude. We collude every working day. But you're also saying... We mustn't be nihilistic. We mustn't be. Well, no, I'm not, give up. I'm not saying we shouldn't at all. No, gosh, far from it. I, many of my days are painfully um, met, um, pushing back against that very charge, either explicitly stated or implicitly felt. But I'm wondering how that balance ought to be struck. The sense of perceived nihilism in an increasingly expectant world, um, and the clinical bravery to do good informed and, by what you're describing as good care. And I think the principal collusion is around going along with the notion of certainty. We do not critique the science sufficiently. We do not 
acknowledged the extent to which the science has been corrupted by vested interest. And, uh, and, we, and we just perpetuate this illusion that we can fix it. And, and, and uh, yeah. uh, as a profession, not, not necessarily as individuals. Yeah. But, uh, but I think and I think that, yes. the, the playing out in old people, you know, the, the, uh, the, the 80 year olds with peg tubes after a stroke. I, well, mean, I mean, I think, just... well, that may or may not be appropriate, but I think there are other examples where well, they have the been. That's the point, that it may or may not be, because we're, trying, we're individual. It, 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 it depends on the individual. Yeah, I don't want they're... a peg tube. Folks. You may not do. Oh, there right. are many others that might <laughs> and would be well enough for yeah. it. So that's the difficulty. Is... But I, I think, in a way, there's a bigger question behind it, which is a lot of our ethical decisions do not have a point, uh, as it were, yeah. there's a continuum. Yeah. So, right treatment, wrong treatment, there's no single point. Less, least of all, a generalizable yes. point. But that's true. Take something like the decision of what is free speech and what is hate speech. Yes. At what point do you move from free speech to hate speech? Yes. There isn't a chop. Yes. Well, likewise, when do you move from appropriate to inappropriate treatment? So there is a real um, difficulty. I think what we're, all of us are agreeing is where. Sorry that there's such pressure often to go into the territory of inappropriate yes. treatment. That there are, but it doesn't mean to say that we know what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate. And I share um, Iona's view of uncertainty, which is at the heart of much medicine, uh, particularly in general practice, where you have to live with uncertainty to a degree that I personally would have found unbearable. But in the face of uncertainty and in the face of so much therapeutic possibility, the drive always defaults to intervene. Yes. Systematically. Not yeah. just in, in, on a ward or in someone's front room, but actually across the nation. And I, the one thing we've not talked about yet here, so we're, I'm minded to bring up what I'm sure you both know about, so Philip Alston's report on extreme poverty yeah. in the UK. Now, if we're interested in... The, so we started this by saying, what's the content of the good? And if we've, we've accepted that the content of the good is to alleviate suffering, improve well-being, possibly prolong life... In intervening in the ways we're talking about, still, we've got austerity privileging the wealthy, punishing the poor, almost Dickensian, four million in this country living below the 50% poverty line, this is all from his report, 1.5 million people living in destitution in the world's fifth largest economy. Now, what's our response to that as I go back to my office tonight and tap in, well, I won't go back to my office tonight, <laughs> tap in, you know, authorisation, pembrolism app, I have a million millions of pounds, pat myself on the back for being an amazing oncologist because I can use immunotherapy, against that deficit exactly. impacting on the well-being of large numbers of people. I think that's always a difficult trade-off. Uh, we some treatments are expensive, uh, and some treatments are obviously... I was on NICE for three years, one of the... And, and you know, there were advocates of very expensive treatments, but in, in the hinterland where hip replacements that were being foregone because of expensive treatments. Having said that, the real wickedness that's been revealed by Philip Olson's report is actually something that's happened since about 2010, which isn't about those kind of decisions we're talking about. We're talking about decisions of how much are we going to commit to public service, to supporting the vulnerable, the ill, and so on and so forth. And I think what he was picking up is the withdrawal from the welfare state, essentially, and that's a different conversation between very expensive cancer drugs versus lots of total hip replacements versus 
providing support for older people. Is it a different conversation? No, it, well, no not necessarily. Uh, they, 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 clearly there's competition. I mean, my hip replacement and somebody else's um, cancer drug, yes, they're in a sort of competition, but that's a moral competition. What is an immoral competition is somebody's right to hide away their funds on a tax haven, the right to reduce taxes, uh, you know, all the iniquitous things that have been happening. There, there there's a straightforward moral case. Okay. We're manufacturing sickness on a massive scale with this, um, these social determinants. I mean, this, this plays out in, in future costs of the health service yeah. hugely. Uh, and what it is, this is the deliberate creation of a hostile environment. What's Not it? Just Sorry, what are we talking about here? The report? No, 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 no. No, no the, the decisions that lie behind that right. report. The, 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 yeah. the, since, the, since the crash, we have developed a hostile environment, not just for immigrants, but for, for poor people across mm. the country. It's a hostile environment, and it's been deliberately created. And, and that's uh, why, in uh, a way, it's not comparable to a very serious or very honourable dilemma between how much you invest in very expensive treatments for a few as opposed to relatively cheap treatments for many. And I think that that is actually a very, very difficult... Um, the reason I worry, Ray, that it isn't a separate conversation is that we can sit here and comfortably um, lay concerns at the, at the desks of the bureaucrats and the politicians, but actually, if we are to have, um, maybe as part of our responsibility and duty towards love... Some of that means actually engaging in the political argument that isn't solely about our contracts and our working conditions, yes. which is what, you know, when we talk about, not long ago we were very chuffed at the politicisation of doctors. Mm. Now, it may, be, it may well be that some of that was about um, the NHS, but also it was very much about our contractual aches, yeah? How is it possible that we can be mobilised to that kind of political conversation, yet not this one that says, my responsibility here is to a society, mm. premised on love or beneficence or altruism, whatever we choose to call it, a duty that compels me, yet allow, um, in Ishimata's word, ourselves to organise ourselves in this way. Surely, in fact, we should be having more meaningful political debates about this with the public. Of course. I mean... There is a division of labour here. An old fart like me who doesn't have a job anymore can spend a lot of time on the pavement, which I have done. No, that's fine. Protesting against what's happening. A lot of people are very busy and don't, don't have the time. But our medical representatives, unfortunately, don't pick up that political baton and actually engage with those kind of conversations. I've caused a lot of annoyance in my role, I'm sure, on, on the, Royal, the Royal College why physicians. Not, Ray? Is it, it can't just be that they're busy and fatigued. There must be... I'm sure that's true. I know that's true. Um, but there must be another element to the reticence to engage in this it's forcefully. A, mm. It's a sense of helplessness, mm. I think. Only? Well, we just saw the, uh, the Ney Passeran film. Have you seen the Ney Passeran film? It's a fantastic film about these East Fife trade unionists... And, they, and it was a documentary, and, and they went to visit these, these old... Who, in the 70s, blacklisted the aircraft engines that were sent for repair by the Chilean junta. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and these amazing old guys who didn't know the effect they had on life in Chile, but it was huge. And they were just... They thought, this is wrong, we're not going to do this. Um, and they thought they might be sacked, but they didn't think that it was really likely... But they thought this could never happen now. 
because the, uh, the, the strength of the trade unions has been completely broken. So, that, that is, so there's a whole new battle that has to be fought. Um, and, and, and I mean, the, the trade unions used to, wouldn't, I mean, in, trade unions before Mrs. Thatcher would not have tolerated the generation of this hostile environment. And it's how, how we have the, how we regenerate the, an opposition to this. I, because I, 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 being <coughs> on the streets, we, we, we've, we've all been on, you know, we demonstrate against Iraq war, you demonstrate sure. against Trump, you demonstrate... I, I, you, I agree. You and minor strike, nothing. But 10 minutes ago, you mentioned private medicine. Yeah. Well, but just, there is a big issue as to what the professions are. If it, Durkheim said the professions were intermediate bodies. They protect the people against the government and the government against populism, essentially. And we've lost that role. And I feel that... Out of uh, helplessness? Um, it may be. I just think there's a certain reluctance amongst our leaders. I mean, collectively... Medical leaders. Medical leaders. Why? And if we what spoke with one voice... Yeah then I think we could start engaging with the moral debate. Instead of quite appropriately complaining about lack of funding for this, lack of funding for that, say, ladies and gentlemen, please connect. When you next complain about a tax rise, remember we may need more taxes to fund the health service that you so love. Please connect. Do not let the Daily Mail run the, the dialogue about the provision of service and so on. So I think the medical profession has to recover its sense of moral duty, and as part of the <coughs> love of the profession. I think John Berger said, and I can't remember whether you quoted him, that part of our medicine and love is our love for our profession and our sense of what the profession means. And I think we've lost that. It may be because we've become too busy, and certainly I can remember when I was practicing, I was probably too busy to go on the pavement. I now have the leisure. But I think we, we are not perhaps being represented by our medical leaders in this big moral Conversation. I think it's too easy. I think it's like Sam accusing us of, uh, of, of, of uh, me in particular, because I always do it, of blaming politicians and policymakers. But I think blaming our medical leaders is the same thing. It's we get, get the a handle on the situation, though, but it's it? where and people blaming them and saying, "Okay, but we've got to do more." You but, talk about yeah. recovering, recovering a um, um, sense of duty, and I just wonder about those halcyon days of what you know, whether we, whether yeah. we are actually they're slightly. A figment. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure there were ever any house. I've no, complained yeah. in every day of my career. <laughs> every single day, so I have moaned about something. In so. 1970, the treatment for a myocardial infarction would have been bed rest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the time when um, Sasol was acknowledged as recognising fraternity. And now, of course, you're whipped down to the local cardiothoracic centre, you're, you're stented, you're fixed, and you're back on the squash court, whatever, a week later. So... I just wonder if the halcyon time we were talking about is almost incomparable to the current arena that we find ourselves in. And almost rather than trying to recover something, if we're genuinely interested in the duty that you're both describing and we're trying to foster it, we need to articulate it almost from scratch I, in a world of technical, I, I, I endless think, technical possibility. I, I think you're conflating two things. <laughs> One is the huge scientific advances and even advances in the way we deliver care. Uh, and all of that is fantastic. I mean, I remember the days when people were put to bed for myocardial infarction. But then there's this separate issue, which really we're, we're concerned, is where do the professions sit in society? What is their independent and loud voice? Uh, to some extent, our job 
is to be, as Ibsen said, the enemy of the people, to call uh, out things that are wrong. But to quote you, society gets the doctors it deserves. Well, I guess it's, and it's, it's the medical a circular, leaders it deserves. Yes, it's, it's a circular, circular <laughs> thing, absolutely. Yeah, and the medical legal, you know. Medical m- leaders. M- uh, medical leaders, yeah, yeah that's but, true. But, but Sam, you're doing what everybody always does, which go on and on and on about what is different and not go on about what hasn't changed at all. Just say that, explain that to me. What do you mean? Well, you say that you know, medicine is so different now, oh, okay. it's completely unrecognisable. Well, I don't think but I've said that, actually, at all. I've said that there's been advance. There has been advance. That's irrefutable. Yes. Yeah? But, and, and society's changed by our own admission, existential, you know, technical fixes for existential questions. We're disorientated by the advance and the expectation, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. And we're trying to articulate what shape the good should be mm. and who we should articulate that to and why we're not articulating it politically. Mm. I think that we need to get back to the enduring things. You know, people are born, they get sick and they die. Oh, hang uh, on a second. I mean, I mean that metaphor is conditional. You can't yeah. argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You hang, can. Hang, 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 hang on a second. But, I, mean, I, 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 I that, just wanted to finish a point. Of course, course, of course. Yes, Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with that. I've, yes. I've, I've, I've completely lost my point. Of people course. get uh, born, get sick, sick and die, yeah. and, yeah. And, and everybody who ever loves anybody at risk of terrible loss, loss and bereavement yeah. and grief. And the way we've sidelined those. They used mm. to be... They, well, I think they used to be much more core to medicine than they are now. Well, because there was very little we could almost do to mm. remedy them. But you're right, they're almost opaque yeah. now. The fact of human mortality is opaque. I mean, I quote Theodore Darabin again, you know, man is born everywhere immortal, yet he dies. Somebody must have been at fault. It seems to me that, yes, we're never going to, as it were, cancel mortality. But the fact remains is, I I would quite like to live a bit longer. You know, a lot of people are sick of Raymond Tallis, but I can't get enough of him. And it seems to me (laughs) that uh, to to live longer is is probably a fundamental good. Not living longer in hell, but living longer in reasonable state. And that surely is a reasonable aim for medicine. But of course we don't absolutely destroy... I mean, We We have to be so careful, because the same things that will keep you living your... I'm sure, very wonderful life for a bit longer, actually also prolong lives that are totally oh, miserable. Course. And this is where we can have, can't have a general principle. You know, when do you stop treating Raymond Tallis? That's, you know, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, I hope I'd have a say in it, and I hope Mrs Tallis has a say in it. I hope uh, Math Hancock doesn't have a say in it. So it seems to me that, that there, there is, again, no sharp division, like the division between... different between meddlesome medicine and worthwhile medicine is no sharper than the division between free speech and hate speech. We we have to think much more deeply about what we do and about the effects of what we do, both in the short term and the long term, and not assume that just because we mean well, we're we're doing good. It's a call to arms for judgment and wisdom, I suppose. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Thinking deeply... In uh, the, you know, when, when the Daily Mail is leading the conversation, is like love in the time of cholera. It's actually quite difficult. But it does seem to me, I couldn't agree with you more, we have to ask big questions. But those questions have to be asked by people who collectively have regained some of the authority they once had as professions. We're Maybe. out of time. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Uh,